0: Welcome to the CMC Podcast, where our mission is to inspire you to be a doer of the Word. Today's message is brought to you by our guest speaker. I want to start off with a scriptural concept. We're told in 1 Corinthians that if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So if we raise a good standard of looking at ourselves, examining, like we're told in James 1, don't look at yourself in the mirror and turn away and not change. So if you see dirt on your face, you see your hair messed up, get it fixed. Uh, we're told that in relation to the church, we should be diligent to know the state of our flock. So I want to start off by just showing you kind of where Christianity is in the nation right now, where we are in America. Um, it's, not, it's not in a good spot. That doesn't mean this church, because I know Tim, Terry, I know this church, I know where you are, but you just need to see where the family of God is overall in the nation right now. Let me start by going to just statistically where we are with rights and wrongs. Right now, three out of five Americans believes that there's no absolute moral truth. Now, I will tell you, this makes it impossible for America to continue to survive. For a nation to survive, you have to have 51% of the people agree on what's right and wrong. Otherwise, a law means absolutely nothing. If 60% can say anything they want or believe anything they want, you've got no future. It becomes exactly what we see in the book of Judges where it says twice in the book of Judges that every man did that which was right in their own eyes you'll end up with anarchy. There's no way you can survive. We also know that with the next generation, like with millennials, it's four out of five millennials who believe there's no absolute moral truth. So it's even stronger with those who will be the future leaders in every area of life and culture. And when it comes to Christians, it's one out of two Christians that believe there's no absolute moral truth. Now, this is the one that surprises me. I would think, wait a minute, isn't there something called the Ten Commandments? Oh no, they're the Ten Suggestions, my bad. I mean, we don't even have moral truth in areas like that. So when we see where we are right now as a result of that, we also see the church, not just individual beliefs, but the churches, There's 384,000 churches and senior pastors in America. And we work closely with George Barna and a number of areas. And, and Barna does a lot of polling here. And calling 500 churches a day, he asked them six very simple questions about, do you as church, senior pastor, do you agree with these six statements? What, what do you think? And here are six statements. Does absolute moral truth exist according to the Bible? What is the answer to that? Yes. yes. Okay. Number two, is the Bible accurate in its teachings according to the Bible? Yes. yes. Number three, is Satan a real being? Oh, yes. Number four, can heaven be earned? No. Number five, did Jesus live a sinless life? Yes. Number six, did God, does God still rule in the world today? Yes. Good for you. Actually, seventy-two percent of pastors say they disagree with those, seven, those six basic tenets. So think of what their congregations get as a result of what they themselves believe. And so that's not a very strong, very strong commendation where the church is. Uh, Barna also points out that of the more than 70 different moral categories that he studies, and you can think of 70 different moral categories, maybe that's like murder and adultery and theft, and maybe it's like violence and drugs and lying and whatever, 70 different categories, he says in 70 different categories, when we compare Christians to non-Christians, we rarely find substantial differences. Actually, what we find now is Christians have a higher divorce rate than non-Christians, and born-again Christians have the highest divorce rate of all. 87% of born-again Christians got divorced after they became Christians. So it's like we've never even read what Jesus said to Peter in in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 15, or what God says in Malachi 3, or all these. It's like we don't even know what the Scripture says in these areas, and you just can't find a behavioral difference then when you look at scriptures reading God's word, and by the way, scripture reading God's word, we're told by Jesus in Matthew, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We have to have spiritual food just like we have physical food, but if we were to eat our physical food only when we ate spiritual food, most of us would be dead. I mean, we, just, we have three good meals a day physically, Mm, not really every day with the the scriptures matter of fact the statistics show that only nine percent of christians read the bible on a daily basis so we're only getting food once a day for nine percent of christians that's not healthy and we find that only six percent of christians have a biblical worldview now biblical worldview would be taking each of these items that's right here because every everyone i chose all these items because they've all been in the news in the past two years but there are also very clear Bible verses on every one of them. So what Bible verses would you use for free enterprise or for gender identity? Or where does the Bible talk about minimum wage? And Jesus has an entire teaching on minimum wage. How about education? Where does the Bible talk about progressive income tax? Can we put Bible verses to that? And the answer is most Christians cannot. Only one in 16 Christians can actually look at things going on in the culture and relate it to Bible verses, very specific things in the culture. So we find that even among pastors, only 2.8% of pastors will preach about those things even though they're in the Bible. Very rarely do we hear relevant application to life. So what we see as a result is there's been a change in in Christians in America. If you go back to the year 2000, in the year 2000, 85% of Americans professed to be Christians. Last year, it was down to only 65%. So we've had a 20% drop in Americans professing Christianity in the last 20 years. And when we poll them and say, why did you guys leave the church? Why did you stop going to church? Two out of three say, because the church lacks relevancy. I don't get anything that applies to my real life. It's all theoretical kind of stuff, pie in the sky in the future. There's nothing practical for me. So when we look at where we are at the church today, this is why a lot of people, you hear them say, we got to have a revival. We need a revival in America. We're praying for revival. We need a revival and that's a really good thing to pray for. However, there's a major problem with that. I don't think we're gonna have a revival the way that we think we do, and the problem we have is we have a national focus. Let me explain that. Everybody gets their news from somewhere. So if you're on the right, there's gonna be, I don't know, Fox or Epic Times or Victory News or Newsmax. If you're on the left, it's gonna be CNN, MSNBC, whatever it is, everybody gets their news. And as a result, most of us can have a fairly intelligent discussion about what's going on with Congress what's going on with the Supreme Court or what's going on with the White House. We, we know a pretty good bit of that. Try having that same discussion with what's going on at the local school board or what the city council did last Thursday. Or we don't know the local stuff, we know what's happening at a national level because that's where we get our news. I doubt that you've listened to the news and heard any story, story on Waterton, New York or any story on Scottsbluff, Nebraska, or any story on Yukon, Oklahoma, or Jacksboro, Texas, anything else. We know the national stuff. We don't know what's going on around us in so many areas. And so what happens is, and by the way, I'm I'm very involved in all of those areas. Back up a minute. In December of 2015 is when ISIS started moving into Iraq to set up the caliphate in Iraq. And so as they moved in and we're taking over Iraq and the caliphate is, we're gonna set up global Islam and it's kind of like the second return of Christ. Christ is gonna rule over everything except is gonna rule over everything. So the caliphate is kind of like their, their second coming or in this case, the third coming. So what happens with this is as the scouts with ISIS were moving in and going through areas, the scouts would go from home to home checking what was there. And they had spray paint cans with them, red spray, red, red paint. And if there was a Christian in the home, if that was a Christian home, what they would do on the outside of the house, they would paint the Arabic letter Nun. And what it looks like is a backwards C with a red dot in the middle. And that's, that Arabic letter Nun means Nazarene. In other words, these are followers of the Nazarene. And so what would happen is those, the scouts would go through, mark those houses that had Christians. And as the army, the ISIS army would come through when they got to houses that were marked as, as Christians living there, what they would do is they would erect a sharpened pole in the front yard and they would impale the entire family on that pole from daddy on bottom all the way to the infant child on top. And this is a message to all of the Christians who live here, this is what's going to happen to you. You need to convert or this, this is what you'll face. So as that was happening, the number of christians in the middle east went from 2.5 million down to 200,000. It was actually believed that for the first time since jesus had walked in the middle east that we were not going to have christians in the middle east it looked like it's going to be extinguished at that point in time glenn beck who's a very good friend of mine came up and said we got to do something he started what's called the nazarene fund i run glenn beck's non stuff so glenn and i run the nazarene fund and so what we did was we got people to, to go in and literally do stuff. Uh, the guy who heads all of our operations for us was the guy who was this, the uh, chief intelligence officer for Secretary of Rumsfeld. He was the chief intelligence officer for, for Secretary of Defense Gates. Uh, he was national security counsel with Trump. The guy is the best in the world and knowing the Middle East, what's going on there with contacts, assets, et cetera. So we got him, he was in charge. We started going to the Middle East and we literally rescued hundreds of thousands of Christians out of the Middle East in that period of time. We were able to take tens of thousands of Christians and send them to safe locations. We sent tens of thousands to Australia. We sent to Brazil and the Slovakia and to Canada. And it was, I mean, just saving Christians like crazy. Now it was interesting. We were not allowed to send persecuted Christians to the United States. The United States wouldn't take persecuted Christians, but the other nations would. And so we could send them elsewhere. And then in 2017 came in and the military just kind of crushed ISIS. And so the caliphate went away. That was no longer an issue. So ISIS now is to to make money, keep itself alive and relevant. It gets into sex trafficking. And so they would kidnap Christians and then sell them into sex slavery across the world. So our guys would go in and would snatch and grab from ISIS, go into their hotspots and grab these Christians out and get them out. And it was was literal warfare. I mean, two of our guys got killed doing this. One guy got shot 17 times. So we'd go grab them and then ISIS needed to keep funding itself. It didn't have a caliphate, but it wants one. So what they would do is they would kidnap Christians. They'd kidnap Christian kids, Christian children, and they would kill them and then sell all the organs called organ harvesting. We can sell heart for 50,000, we can sell lungs for 30,000. And so this is how they funded their operation in the meantime. So they're trying to survive and we've been able to shut down a number of those organ harvesting farms. We just found a new one in Nigeria, working on getting it shut down, but nonetheless, this is going on. And so now we come to Afghanistan in Afghanistan, we decided to pull out. We're going to pull out of Afghanistan. And so all the terrorist groups say, great, we'll move back in there and start the caliphate there. And so when it was announced that by August, we were going to pull out of Afghanistan, and you remember what happened, everything fell apart in Afghanistan. Women were throwing their babies over the fence to try to get their kids to, to, to America, get them to freedom somewhere. And so as that was happening, the military, JSOC, called us, the, the first week in August as this thing starting to get really bad and said, would you guys take over the evacuation of the civilians out of the airports and out of the areas? Would you do that? We got our hands full with the military. So she said, yeah, we'll do that. So we took over evacuations and so we started moving people out. And, and at that point you have 20 different terrorist groups that have moved into Afghanistan. You get ISIS, Al-Qaeda three, Taliban, all these different groups. And so we're having to deal with all these groups to get these people out of there and, and get them to the airport where we can get them in planes and et cetera. And it was interesting that with all the terrorists we had to deal with, the biggest problem we had wasn't the terrorists, it was the U.S. State Department. U.S. State Department did more to hinder us than any of the uh, the terrorist organizations. We had a plane in the air going to Macedonia. State Department called ahead and said, send that plane back, don't let it land. We had two planes going to Albania. They called ahead Albania and said, don't let that plane land, send it back. We already had clearances. We can't take off without clearances. And while we're in the air, they send it back. And ISIS is still looking for Christians. They were going door to door. If they found an SIV or an ally, an Afghan ally who would help the American military, they would hang them on the spot. If they found a Christian, they would behead them and burn them right there. And so we were, we were still trying to get Christians out. And so we pre-vet everyone. We don't send anybody to any country that we don't know who they are. Uh, we uncovered a lot of sleepers from ISIS and Al-Qaeda that were in the groups and wanted to get out so they could find another country to blow up somewhere. So we do all this pre-vetting. So we had all the names cleared. And suddenly the State Department starts giving our list of who are Christians and gives that to the Taliban and gives that to terrorists. And so now they know who they're looking for to kill. It's like, are you kidding me? So at that point in time, I said, so we've got to have help. So I started calling members of the U.S. Senate and, and congressmen, their friends, and said, guys, here's what's going on. Need your help now. You need to lean on Secretary of State Blinken and tell them to get those, let those planes out of there. Tell the State Department stop, just stop stopping us. And so Blinken said no. And then the senators and congressmen put more pressure on him and said, okay, I'll do it. So Blinken calls in the, the Middle East desk and the State Department says, let these planes go. Let these people out of there. And the State Department looked at him and said, no, we're not going to do that. He said, wait a minute, I'm your secretary of state, let the planes go. No sir, we're not gonna do that. What do you mean you're not gonna do that? See, people think that the State Department works for the president and whoever the president's executive is, that's not true. You go back even to Ronald Reagan. 1987, he stood in front of the Brandenburg Gate at the Berlin Wall and he gave that famous speech, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Immediately, the State Department sent out a communicate all over the world to all the nations saying that does not represent our views. What do you mean that doesn't represent your views? That's the President of the United States. See, the State Department, like so many federal departments, they don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat, they're who they are and they're gonna do what they because you can't fire any of them. So you got a lot of Marxists and communists and socialists. Even back in 2017, uh, you may recall, or 20, actually 15, about 300,000 veterans we identified as being killed in VA hospitals because of terrible medical treatment led to the reform of the VA. And so we found we couldn't fire any of those guys, even though they were killing vets, we couldn't fire any of them. So in 2017, got a law passed that said you can fire them. So we started firing people out of the VA. And then four months ago, the Labor Relations Board comes back and says, no, you really can't fire anybody. All those guys get their jobs back. I mean, you just, there, there's no accountability at, at that point. So here I am dealing with this stuff that, that's going in, in Afghanistan. And I've been involved in 13 cases, of the US Supreme Court involved in one this year. Uh, look, I'm connected to that level and you know what? I can't get nothing done. And it's really frustrating and it makes me very angry. And as a result, I feel paralyzed. I can't, I can't get a single thing done with what's going on, there. And I've got some decent connections, more than a lot of people do, so we all feel that way. We all look at what's going on in the news and we can't get Pelosi to do anything. We can't get the president to do what we want. We can't get the Supreme Court to do what we think we all get frustrated and see that's the problem is we should be looking at what we can do and that's the local stuff around us. But that's not where we get informed. That's not where we see the information. And so when you look at what happens with local stuff, let me take you back to some historical examples. The American War for Independence. The American War for Independence, if you consider the first four battles the American War for Independence, and top right, you have Battle of Lexington, top left, Battle of Concord, bottom left, Road to Boston, and bottom right, Bunker Hill. Interesting that those four, first four battles that start the American War for Independence, Nobody contacted George and said, George, you're the national commander in chief. Here we are at Lexington, we're outnumbered 10 to one. There's 700 of them, there's 70 of us, we need your help now, get us reinforcements. Nobody contacted George. How come? Because the attitude was, it's our community, we'll take care of it, you got other stuff to do. You do the national stuff, we'll do the local stuff. This is a battle that's in our community. And it's significant, that's what you see throughout that entire time. For example, if you take that first one, the the Battle of Lexington, what happened was April the 19th, 1775, 700 British come to town and we're told in our textbooks that 70 courageous Americans went out to face the British. Not true, what happened was the church of the Reverend Jonas Clark went out to face the British and he had 70 men in his church. Now, Pastor Clark had been talking to them for a good time because starting five years earlier, the British had started shooting at us. And so Pastor Clark saying, guys, Look, it, we may get into a war with this thing, and if we do, you need to know what the Bible says about war. And he started going through, and he says, now, you can never be involved in an offensive war. God, not, God's not going to bless an offensive war, but you can be in a defensive war. If they start something, you're allowed to defend yourself. you got two passages in Nehemiah. you got Luke. You've got uh, the passage in Exodus 22. So you're allowed self-defense, but you can't start anything. And so he teaches them about war. And so when the British come to town and his church goes out there to say, wait a minute, guys, you're you're not going to do this in our community. It was the deacon of the church who had been training the men, John Parker. If you ever go to Lexington, you will see the the Minuteman statue, and that's John Parker. And he reminded the 70 guys, he said, guys, don't forget what pastor's been teaching us. And it's engraved in stone there on the Minuteman statue at the bottom. It says, stand your ground, but don't fire unless fired upon. They get the first shot. He said, but if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. We're drawing a line in the sand, and we're not going to move. This is wrong, and we're not going to let it happen in our community. So it, we lost the battle that day, and it wouldn't have matter if we'd had SEAL Team 6 on our side. We still would have lost the battle because everybody uses a single-shot musket. That's it. So you've got 700 single-shot muskets who get the first shot at 70 guys, and they don't get to shoot until they've been shot at that's why 18 Americans hit the ground that morning. No British hit the ground. The British go ahead and march on through Lexington because they've got the guys down. The next battle we have is the Battle of North Bridge at Concord. And at that point, history books tell us that between three and 400 courageous Americans went out, went, out to, uh, they, they went out to face the British. No, again, it was a church. It was the Church of the Reverend William Emerson who went out to face the British, and he had between three and 400 men in his church. And when they got out there, they said, guys, you're just not gonna do this in our community. And and by the way, we heard that you opened fire on our brethren over in Lexington, so game on. Well, this is where the first British hit the ground that morning because they started it. Now it's in a position where we can do something defensively because we're not not gonna let this happen in our town. And so the British commander at that point said, this is not going the right way. I just faced 70 Americans. Now I've got between three and 400. There's only 700 of us. If this thing keeps growing, I'm gonna be in serious trouble. Let's get back to Boston and get reinforcements. That's the third battle. He turns around, heads back to Boston. It's a 19-mile march back to Boston, called the Road to Boston. And along the way, what he feared is exactly what happened. There were 4,500 Americans lining the roads on both sides, shooting at them as they went by. Now, where'd all those guys come from? Well, Reverend Payson Phillips grabbed his church and brought them out there and Reverend Benjamin Balls grabbed his church and brought them out. Again, this is our community and you're not gonna do this in our community. Then even the Battle of Bunker Hill, you have the Reverend Joseph Willard who says, I got two companies here in the church, let's go get all the other churches, we'll defend Boston. So this is the way we had things going in the American War for Independence and that's the way the war really went. Uh, There were about 80 battles in the American War for Independence and in the American War for Independence, nearly all of them were local battles. Now we needed George. We had to have George at Yorktown and at Monmouth and at Brandywine. But even there, it was the local forces that showed up to reinforce him and give him what he needed. So it really was we won the American War for Independence because we won so many local battles all over the nation that it looked like a national victory and it was all done. But the focus was local. It wasn't about we're going to get healthy from the top down. It's we're going to take care of this in our own community. But now we're praying for revival and we want a revival, and that's a good thing to want. But you see, we got the same problem. Revivals, you don't have national revivals. Revivals occur locally. Now, wait a minute. I specifically remember Great Awakenings. That's a national revival because, after all, you had George Whitfield. I mean, Whitfield, he preached for 34 years, he preached 18,000 sermons. And grab this 80% of all Americans physically heard him preach a sermon. Wow. Wow. wow in a time of no tech. you know, if I had 80% of Americans who heard a message today, we would say that's message penetration. Well, he's got no tech back then, and he's got 80% who have heard the message? How does that happen? Real simple. It's not a national revival. He was the chaplain of Georgia. He got on his horse in Georgia, and he rode to Maine. Now, Maine at that time was not a state yet. It was still part of Massachusetts. So he rode from, from Georgia up to Massachusetts, or to Maine, the northern part of Massachusetts, and he preached in every single town he went through. It took him a long time to get there. Then when he got to Maine, he turned around and rode back to Georgia, but he went a different route, preaching every town he went through all along the way. Then when he got to Georgia, he turned around and went back to Maine. He did that seven times on horseback. Back, it took him 34 years, seven times going back. See, 80% of Americans physically heard him preach a sermon because he was in 80% of the towns in America. That's where revivals broke out. And once revival broke out, how'd you keep it going for years? Well, it was local pastors. Once the revival broke out in Boston, Samuel Cooper's the guy who kept it flamed and going there in Boston for a long time. Once it broke out in Philadelphia, it was Gilbert Tennant in Philadelphia who kept the revival going in Philadelphia. And once it broke out in, in the sticks of Virginia, out in the rural areas, it was Samuel Davies who kept it going. We had all these local revivals that were going on across the nation, which is what led to the national revival. So what happens is national revivals or anything change, it, it comes, it comes from, from local stuff. So our obsession with the national focus has got to be replaced with the more local focus. Now, having said that, let me show you even how this works in political areas. If you take something as simple as voting, to vote in the United States, two constitutional requirements. To vote, you have to be 18 years old and you have to be a legal citizen. If you can do that, 100% of people who are 18 years old who are legal citizens can vote. One more thing. Please fill out a piece of paper and register to vote. We just want to make sure you don't vote seven times or somebody doesn't vote seven times for you, just register to vote. At this point, 65.3% of eligible voters are registered to vote. So we have 110 million Americans who have said, I don't care what happens to the nation, I ain't gonna be part of nothing that goes on. So we have 110 million Americans who have checked out and can't even do something as simple as registering their opinion on candidates or policies or anything else. Now, there's two types of elections in America. The first type is what we call a presidential election. This is when you have the biggest turnout. This, over the last 11 presidential elections, we average a 54% turnout, but that's 54% of registered voters. So that's not 54% of adults. That's 54% of the 65.3%, which means 36% of Americans vote for president, and it takes half of that to win, which is 18%. Over the last 21 off-year elections, and that's what we're gonna have this November, this is where we'll choose our, our governors and our senators and our reps, state and federal. Over the last 21 off-year elections, the voter turnout is 38%, but that's 38% registered voters. That's 38% of 65.3%, which means 26% of Americans vote for governor and, and senator reps, and it takes half that to win, which is 13%. So what you're looking at is on average, One out of five Americans chooses the president of the United States, and one out of eight Americans chooses our governors and senators and reps. Now go to the local level. At the local level, your average voter turnout is about 6%, but that 6% is 65.3%, which is actually about 4%. It takes half of that to win, and that's 2%. Let me take you to Los Angeles. Los Angeles is the second largest city in the nation, behind only New York City. In Los Angeles, the population of Los Angeles is bigger than the population of 23 separate states. So if you're Eric Garcetti, mayor of Los Angeles, that's like being governor in 23 states. Garcetti brags about the fact that who is elected mayor of Los Angeles with 2.9% of the vote. Now here's a guy who is church hostile, tried to shut down the churches, they're not essential. All the bad policies, 2.9% of the vote. If you go to my home state of Texas, Houston, the fourth largest city in the nation, and the population of Houston is larger than the population of 20 separate individual states. Houston elected a niece Parker mayor. She was elected with 4.9% of the registered vote. Now, 4.9% of registered vote means about 3.3% of adults in that election. That's how she got elected. It's interesting, once she got elected, she said, You know, I'm so tired of hearing you guys say that marriage between a man and a woman, because she was openly lesbian, first openly lesbian mayor of Houston. She says, when you say marriage between a man and a woman, that's a hate crime, you're attacking me personally. No, 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 Anise, we were saying this before you were ever born. We've been saying this for 5,800 years since God said it in Genesis 1, 2, 3. No, that's a hate crime, you're attacking me. So what she did was she got this measure passed called HERO. Houston Equal Rights Ordinance. Now the top 200 cities in the United States have these equal rights ordinances or equal rights amendments or human rights ordinances, human rights amendments, they got various names, but says, hey, if you say marriage between a man and a woman, it's a hate crime. So once that got passed, she said, I know a bunch of pastors in the city said that. And so she went after six pastors. She subpoenaed 16 different forms of communication from them. She said, I wanna see all your text messages, all your emails, all your phone messages. I want access to your computers. I wanna see all your sermon notes. I want copies of all the sermons you've done. And if you've said marriage between a man and woman, you're done. And so at that point in time, we said, this is not going the right direction. So we got 4,500 churches engaged in the city. Those 4,500 churches got them engaged and put a referendum on the ballot. Let's vote on this amendment and see if the city really wants this amendment. Well, we worked that and got the referendum on. And the day before the election, the Houston Chronicle ran a poll and said, we're going to get crushed. Our side's going to get crushed. It's going to be 60-40 win. The, The city is firmly behind the mayor on this. And so the next day we had the election. And as it turned out, we had 14% turnout, but we crushed her by 22 points. It was 61, 39, wouldn't even close. <laughs> now, Matt point out 14%, that's pathetic. Yeah, but you know what? It's five times higher than what it had been. And simply by greeting the Christian vote up that much turned into a landslide victory. See, we're not involved and yet we're kinda keeping track, we're losing a little bit of ground. When we get involved just a little bit, it turns into a landslide in the other direction. Uh, take you to the next city. This is Fort Worth, Texas. Fort Worth is the 13th largest city in the United States and six years ago, the school board of Fort Worth said, you know, we've decided we're not gonna do genders anymore at all. We're gonna let kids choose whatever bathroom they want. They can choose whatever locker room they want. They can choose whatever shower they want. We're just not doing genders anymore. And when that silly policy came out, the Secretary of Education nationally, Arne Duncan, who was under President uh, Obama, said, why didn't I think of that? Great idea. So he said, here's the new national policy. If your public school gets any federal dollars, which is 97% of public schools, if your public school gets federal dollars, you're not gonna do genders anymore. We're we're not gonna have, kids can choose whatever bathroom they want, whatever locker room. And so this was disturbing to a whole lot of us, but particularly me, because I live right outside of Fort Worth, and Fort Worth is known as Cowtown USA. That is its nickname, Cowtown USA. Now, you may not be cowboys in here, I can take any, I can take a city slicker and put behind that herd of longhorns and within seconds you can tell which are bulls, which are cows, and which are steers. It's just really easy. And we've never seen a bull become a cow, we've never seen a cow become a bull, it's never happened. And Cowtown USA starts this nonsense of of gender in schools, no gender in schools, So I looked, and in Fort Worth, there are 918,000 voters in Fort Worth, and the president of the school board who introduced the silly policy was elected with less than 1,200 votes. I think it was 1,182 votes. And so I looked in his district, and the district where he ran, I quickly found an evangelical church that had 3,000 Bible-believing, wretched adult voters in that church. That one church could have kept him from being on the school board, which would have saved the whole nation from six years of gender confusion that we've had, and it happened out of a local school board. It happened out of one little city, one little church that could have solved the problem in that city. But again, nobody even knows who's running for school board. Can't tell you what their policies are, who their names are, anything. And so this is where we've got to get focused because this is where so much bad stuff comes from. I'll give you two more examples real quick. If I take you to Bentonville, Bentonville's got 40,000 people, hometown of Walmart. And a Christian lady there said, hmm, you're not doing this in Bentonville. So she ran for the school board and she got elected on the school board. And grab grabbed this town of 40,000, there were a total of 35 votes cast for school board and she won the majority of the 35. That's not even as good as Riceville, Iowa. In Riceville, Iowa, a farmer there said, you sure ain't doing this in our town. And so he ran for school board, but it turned out that on election day, he got busy on election day and ended up not voting. Now don't think he lost by one vote because that's not what happened. What happened is not a single person voted in, for school board Had he voted for himself, he would be on the the school board just by voting for himself because nobody voted in the election. See, that's local stuff, and this is why the focus has got to be back on local stuff. We have to get that local focus going. Now, Benjamin Rush, I think, gave us a really good explanation of why we have to be involved here. Benjamin Rush, founding father. uh, John Adams said he's one of the three most notable founding fathers. John Adams said, there's George Washington, Ben Franklin, Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush, evangelical, devout Christian, started the first Bible Society, started the Sunday School Movement in America, started the first abolition society in America. He started all sorts of stuff. But he's also called the father of public schools under the Constitution. What happened? He said, you know, we used to be 13 different nations. Now we're one nation with 13 different states. What are we going to have to teach in our schools if we're going to stay a unified nation? And so in 1790, he did this piece called The Mode of Education Proper and Public. This is why he's called the father of public schools under the Constitution. He said the purpose of public schools, number one purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve God. He said the number two purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their country. The number three purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their family. Now please notice the order there. For most Christians, we would say, no, I think you missed it there. I think it is God first, but I think it's family second, and I think that it's country third. He said, no, you're wrong. It's God first, it's country second, and it's family third. Now, why would he say that? Because he pointed out that if you ever lose control of your country, it will become the great enemy to your family. So what happens is we've been so busy with our family that we've lost the country, and now look at all the policies that attack our family and make it hard for us to do what we believe we haven't been involved in the country. And so we're trying to save our family now when we could have saved them if we just had good leaders in place. See, this is especially what we see at school boards right now. As you, as you look at, at schools, it turns out we're finding out in the last 18 months, schools have been the real cesspool of all the bad stuff that's happening across the country. You know, that's not good. And that's why in the last 18 months, we've seen people running for school board in levels we've never seen before. Because what, it, What? It, I mean, schools don't have that much impact. Families are much more important. All right, let me show you a recent poll. Poll here. See the headline of this poll? 30% of millennials identify as LGBTQ. Now, that's a high percentage, but here's my question. What percent of their parents identified as LGBTQ? Because we know the impact that parents have on kids, right? So if you got 30% that are LGBTQ, what, what is it with parents? 1.6%. Whoa! to 30%. Notice the next part of the poll. The study also found roughly 48% of millennials prefer socialism over capitalism. Really? What was their parents? 14% of their parents were pro-socialist. How do we go from 14% to 48%? And then on top of that, you see here, only one-third of millennials claim to believe in God. Well, 89% of their parents believed in God, but it's only 33% of millennials. How did this happen? Real simple. It was schools. Say schools had a greater impact than parents did. That's what Jesus tells us in Luke 640. Jesus says every student when he's fully trained will be like his teacher, exactly. And so now we're finding that by not paying attention to those institutions, they've become the great enemy of our family. And so we're having trouble with it. Now, this is why local lux become important. I'm going to give you some examples real quickly. Virginia, you heard what happened in Virginia. They had a new governor elected in Virginia. I'll point out two years ago, the sitting governor, Northam, was in the legislature and they said, you know, if you try to abort a baby and that baby survives and lives, it's okay to go ahead and kill the baby after it's born. And he led the standing ovation in the legislatures. So they cheered for the fact that they can now kill a baby after it was born. Now, last November, we had the election in Virginia, had a different governor chosen. And in January, they were sworn in. And in January, Governor Yonkin grabbed with, he grabbed the hand of his wife and then lieutenant governor and wife and spouse and, and, and then the, excuse me, the lieutenant governor and her spouse, her husband, and then grabbed the attorney general, and he grabbed the hand of his wife, and all six of them stood on the Capitol steps and prayed out loud in Jesus' name. Now that's a little bit of difference from what we had just two years earlier, what made the difference, election. Now it wasn't just election, Uh, a group called Faith Wins, we worked really closely with Faith Wins. They got involved January before the election, 11 months before the election, and they went in and found 312 churches in Virginia. There's thousands of churches in Virginia, tens of thousands. They found 312 churches and got them committed, said guys, we need your help because there's a really important election coming up and we've got to change the direction of the state. So what they did was in those 312 churches, they found 77,000 adults who had never voted, never registered to vote, but they were strong Christians. So they got that 77,000 to register to vote and they voted in the election. Jonkin won with a margin of 66,000. So 312 churches provided 77,000 votes that had never voted before and he wins with 66,000. Churches put him in, but don't stop there. They also said, you know, First Timothy, Paul says that an athlete is not crowned unless he runs according to the rules. And there are rules with the elections, and if we want to win, we've got to run according to the rules. So we need people out of the churches that will be poll watchers and will be election judges and make sure that the rules are followed then everything's done legally. And so they got 1,300. 300 of them became trained, certified state uh, election officials, and the other 1,000 were poll watchers. On, on election day, one guy says, wait a minute this guy's registered to vote 27 times. You can't do that, that's illegal. Another said, hey, we found 17 folks voting in a vacant lot over here. You can't vote from a vacant lot, you gotta have them dressed. And they went, 5.2% of the votes challenged as fraudulent as illegal. Take the 5.2% out, that's the election again. That's the second way that you win the election is you got the illegal votes out. Third thing, they said, you know, uh, all, all, all the stuff that we've got in, up in Northern Virginia, that's where all those people work in Washington DC and, and you, just, you can't get rid of them and they're just crazies up there. You people out in the country that still have a brain are gonna have to really show up bigger than you normally do. We need your influence in this election And so what they did, I told you that average presidential election, 54% turnout, non presidentials 38%. This is an off-year election even for that. So in Virginia, they get about 32% turnout in in that election. What happens in the rural areas, they drove the vote up to 64% turnout in the rural areas. That's higher than the presidential election. And that again is the margin of victory in why Yonkin was elected. 312 churches out of what could have been tens of thousands got engaged and those 312, I can point to three ways that election was won simply because those churches got involved. Same thing happened in Colorado. We went into Colorado and said school boards, we gotta look at this. So we came up with the voter's guide for school boards that asked five simple questions. You know, are there genders and gender pronouns and should boys be playing girls sports, et cetera. And we asked the candidates, do you agree or disagree with that? What's your answer? We took their answers and put in a voter guide, but we, th- we then got that voter's guide into 1,500 churches. Now, one of the reasons we don't vote for local folks is we don't know who's running, it, we don't know what they believe, so I got no opinion on that, I don't know. Well, now you do. You know who's running. You know what they believe. Here's what they believe. If their beliefs are important to you, and if you want something that's close to a traditional American biblical worldview, now you know. And as a result, we got 78 candidates elected for school board in places where the people just don't even show up anymore. It flips school boards all over the state. Let me show you some other headlines too. These are a lot of fun. Uh, this headline right here says, candidates, candidates opposing critical race theory COVID-19 mandates when Minnesota... Minnesota? That's kind of liberal wacky up there. And that's really blue, yeah. And conservatives just took the school board in Minnesota. And then you have this one, I love this. New Jersey, 19 year old who saw his senior year disrupted by COVID shutdowns, unseats the incumbent in a school board race. (laughs) So this 19 year old kid who said, you just cost me my senior year. I'm running against you for your crazy policies. He beat the incumbent by 17 points. Now I will point out, It is really nice to finally have an adult on the school board up in New Jersey at some point. Look at this, slate of conservative candidates declare victory in Hollywood, Denver? Really? Yeah, we just took the school board in Denver. And then here, three or four challengers win seats on conservative challengers win seats on Wichita, Wichita and Kansas City are the two most liberal cities in Kansas. And we just took the conservatives and the school board in Wichita. And then this one, conservative back candidates win Treasure Valley. Treasure Valley is Boise. That's the most liberal part of Idaho. And conservatives just took Boise school board. And then you have this one. Conservatives win big in school board elections. Policy changes could follow. Uh, this one, school board races in major Colorado area districts are sweeping wins. That's where we got the 78 candidates and flipped all these school boards. Uh, Houston, we won the school board in Houston. Houston has 2.3 million people in the city. We won the school board elections with 2,000 votes being cast in school board elections. We got churches organized in Houston. They went out and now we got conservatives running the school board in Houston? Yeah. See, this is what happens when we put our attention on local stuff and get into local stuff. So there's a lot lot of things that can be pointed to there. So local elections. So wrapping this up, to have, if you're gonna vote for good people, in these elections, you've got to have good people on the ballot in these elections. How do you get them? Well, let me take you to Judges 9. In Judges 9, there's the parable of the trees of the field. And what happened was all the trees got together and said, hey, we need civil government. God's told us we've got to have civil government. Romans 13, let's have civil government. And so it says the trees went out to anoint a ruler for themselves. We need somebody to be our leader. And they went to great trees. They, they went first to the, to the uh, olive tree and they said to the olive tree, hey, come be our leader. And the olive tree said, no, 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 it's not going to be me. Said, should I give up my oil by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over the trees? Well, if we can't get the good olive tree, I know, let's go to the fig tree. And so they went to the fig tree and said to the fig tree, come be our leader. And the fig tree said, no way, I'm not going to do that. The fig tree said, should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Now we went to the olive tree and the fig tree. Let's go to the vine. That'll be a good one. So went to the vine and they said to the vine, come be our leader. And the vine said, no, I'm not going to do it. Should I give up my wine, which hears both gods and men to hold sway over the trees? Now notice what's happened here. They went to all the good trees and said, "We need you to be our leader." And all the good trees had reasons why they couldn't. Oh, the kids—they haven't graduated yet. I just started a new business. Everybody's got reasons why they can't do be, be the leaders. So look what happens Look what happens next, and logic should tell you where this is going to go. What we're told next in the story it says: So finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, "That's probably not a really good option." Said to the thorn bush. Hey, why don't you come be our leader? And would you know it, Thornbush is happy to be the leader. He says, if you really want to anoint me king over you, then come take refuge in my shade. Now, just as a point of observation, how much fun is it to sit in the shadow with Thornbush? Not a heck of a lot of fun. I think we got way too many Thornbushes ruling today. How come? Because all the good guys keep saying, no, not me. I'm not going to do that. If the good guys say no, why would you be surprised to have Thornbushes in there? See, and this is where we've got to say, you know, I've got to get involved locally. I've got to do stuff. I've got to find somebody to mentor. You know, our polling right now shows us that this young generation, first time in polling history, wants to be mentored. They want to spend quality time with an adult. 67% of millennials have come out of homes where there was not an intact family. They don't know what quality time with adults is, and they want quality time. When polling them, we said, who would you prefer to spend time with? Number one answer was with my boss. That's not the answer for most generations, but this generation wants to spend quality time with a So mentor. Go. Jesus said, go make disciples of all men. Hey, that's not a group. Just find somebody. Make a disciple of somebody. Just spend time. So there's so many things we can do that will turn this back in the right direction. So we've got to get our eyes off that national focus, get it down to local focus. Um, I'll close with this this challenge from... from uh, He's a revivalist, best way to say it. Charles Finney, part of the Second Great Awakening. In one year, between 1857 and 1858, he personally led 100,000 people to Christ in one year. Now, that revival was significant revival, but again, he's a local guy doing all these local revivals. And so he did a book in 1835 on how to have revival. And we're praying for revival in America, and we need revival, but interestingly, he said there's a science to revival. He looked at all the if-then verses in the Bible. We know them. 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. God says, if my, people, if my people who are called by my name will do this, then I will do this. He said, you don't need to be praying for revival, just do what he tells you to do. So he went through all the if then verses in the Bible, if you'll do this, then I'll do it. He said, you can have revival anytime you want to, just do what he tells you to do. And so he went through the if then verses, and as, as he did, it's interesting, in his lectures, one of the lectures is revival lecture number 15. And he has all these lectures from the if-then verses. And Rival Lecture 15, he says, The church must take right ground in regard to politics. He said, Politics are part of a religion and a country is this, and Christians must do their duty to the country as part of their duty to God. He said, God will bless or curse this nation according to the course that Christians take in politics. Now, interesting. Do you know what the title of that lecture was? It's lecture number 15 and he titled it Hindrances to Revival. He said if you want to stop a revival, don't get involved in politics. Why? Because Proverbs fourteen thirty says righteousness exalts a nation. If a nation does the right thing, God will bless that nation. Do you get righteous policies from bad people? No. That's why Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice, when the wicked rule, the people groan. Only way you get policies that God can bless is to get people in office who will pass policies that God will bless, which takes God-fearing people. And he said, that's why you got to be involved. It's the only way God's going to bless the nation. If you don't get leaders who will do policies God can bless, you're not going to be blessed as a nation. That's part of revival as well. And we're seeing that because we can have a great revival among the people. and It'll be just like China. All the school officials are going to step on it and stomp it down and say, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. You'll have a is trying to stop the very things God's trying to do with his spirit, and that's why you have to have an environment that does that, and that's why Benjamin Rush said, number one was God, number two was country, and number three was family. The country provides an environment for all that stuff to thrive that needs to thrive that, that we have in the family. So, Challenge you to be involved in local stuff. If you wanna keep watching national news, do that, but don't let it distract or discourage you from what you can do locally and around you and with mentoring and with all the other things that can be done. If all this stuff is kinda new to you, then I would point you in the direction of a book we've got back there called The American Story. Also, The Founder's Bible, a lot of great information. God bless you guys, thanks for letting me share. Thank you for listening to the CMC Podcast. If you'd like to watch our sermons live or looking for more information about our church, visit cmcchurch.com or follow us on Facebook at Christian Ministries Church.